Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Formerly with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service, entomologist Dr. Jonathan Lundgren left the ARS in 2016 and started up Blue Dasher Farm and the Akdysis Foundation to promote the expanded use of regenerative agriculture practices across the country. For the past few years, he's been working to validate regenerative farming with scientific data that shows the connection between practices and outcomes. For this week's podcast, we caught up with Jonathan to discuss a new research paper he's written called Defining and Validating Regenerative Farm Systems Using a Composite of Ranked Agricultural Practices. Join us as Jonathan talks about how he and his team developed the regenerative matrix score, the different farming systems they looked at, the metrics they evaluated, and why it matters. So I'm Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, I am the director of Ecdysis Foundation, and I'm also a farmer and a beekeeper and a rancher out here, in addition to being a scientist on Blue Dasher Farm is where I live up in South Dakota. For about 11 years or so, I was a scientist with the USDA in South Dakota, and I started to kind of see things a little bit differently, like there was a real movement going on in that kind of was challenging how we think about our farms. And rather than investing my research time and effort into just incrementally improving a current system, I thought it was more strategic for me and my team to, to try to reinvent not only how agriculture works, but also how science is applied in order to make major transformative shifts in our food system. And so we kind of started this grassroots science that's driven by farmers and, uh, and is having this tremendous impact that we never could have predicted being in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. So can you just sort of talk a little bit more about what it is you're trying to do differently. Yeah, I feel like there's a growing void or distance between scientists and the people that they're trying to help. Um, and, and when you look at, and I think a lot of that is driven by, you know, how are you successful? You know, farmers have a certain metric or a group of factors that they say, okay, if I do this, this, and this, then I'm a successful farmer. And scientists are the same way, right? Mm -hmm. But for scientists, I started looking at all of those things that made me a successful scientist within the 
the current system, it was, you know, publishing peer reviewed papers and it was graduate students and how many millions and grants and how many committees I was on. And I looked at that list and I was like, farmers don't care about any of this stuff. <laughs> Interesting. And, and so I kind of said, all right, we need to reevaluate this and scientists need to be a part of this food community again, don't they? When we started Blue Dasher and Ecdysis Foundation, I, I stepped out. And we said, you know what? The scientists have to be farmers. And, and that changed every question and how we approach our, our science and everything about it and the communicating our science. And no longer am I doing our science for other scientists. Certainly that's one of our audiences, but our main audience is the people who need the research. So we assess ourselves based on different metrics now. Uh, we are all of our research is done on operating farms as opposed to on any research farms or anything like that. That increases the relevancy of what we're trying to do quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And then the questions that we ask are really kind of a little bit bigger and broader and systems level rather than just, mm -hmm. well, I, I come from a world of entomology. And so I was an entomologist and I dealt with insect problem and ignored all of the other pro aspects of the system that caused those insect problems. So our research now, what we try to do is we use scientific methods to validate what regenerative farmers and these most innovative farmers in the world are doing on their farms to prove mm -hmm. that they're not just stories, right? That right. there is actual data behind this and that regenerative farming systems doesn't just work on one farm, it works across the board. And then we're also using our science to try to generate um, roadmaps for transitioning because a lot of farmers, once they hear, geez, this regenerative thing sounds like it could really work and it, uh, um, I'd love to do it, but I don't want to lose the whole farm in trying to do that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we're working on developing those transition strategies with farmers themselves. So how many years have you been doing this with Ecdysis Foundation and the Blue Dasher farm? Uh, five years now, okay. which, I mean, if you had told me when we first got started, oh my gosh, yeah, the fact that we're still alive in five years, let alone at the uh, working on the level that we are is pretty crazy to me. But <laughs> So have you been expanding your team? Yeah, we're up to, I think we'll probably have 25, 30 people on staff this year across the country, California, Minnesota, South Dakota. We're starting hopefully a new facility in Iowa soon, and it's just crazy how this is going. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you are obviously still publishing peer-reviewed papers. Um, in fact, that's why we're talking today. Uh, you recently yeah. authored a paper, and it's called Defining and Validating Regenerative Farm Systems Using a Composite of Ranked Agricultural Practices. Yeah, mouthful, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have noticed that about your papers. <laughs> yeah, that's the scientific lingo, isn't it? Yes, hmm. that's right. Well, um, but anyways, I think it's a really interesting paper, and I'd love it if you could start by just giving us a summary of the paper and just explain a little bit about why you wrote it. Number one, there's a, there's a real incentive for being classified as a regenerative farm right now. Um, perceptions are very favorable towards this. And so there's a lot of interest in being regenerative. Farmers are interested in this, you know, um, agricultural companies are interested, food companies are interested, agrochemical companies are interested. Everybody wants to be the regenerative. 
And, um, but it really begs the question, I mean, there isn't a formalized definition. Um, now science has kind of helped to bring that along a little bit. And so there's a few papers that have recently kind of come out to try to synthesize, okay, what is a regenerative, you know, what is this regenerative agriculture thing? And soil health is important, you know, biodiversity conservation is important. Um, uh, those are some central themes, um, just like we kind of all know, but uh, it's nice to have it formalized. Those definitions really don't help though when you're out on a farm and I walk onto a farm and I can't say, okay, this farm is regenerative, right? Um, and so we really need to have a classification system so that, you know, we can, we can say this operation is regenerative versus this one that's so we've been working uh, we've had to tackle this issue in our in our studies for since claire lacan did her 2018 study that was i think the first peer-reviewed comparison of regenerative and conventional farms that was ever published in that case is we had two treatments right there was a regenerative set of farms and a conventional set of farms we had to be able to classify those things somehow and what we did is we looked at what kinds of practices were being used on those. And, and those practices, this is a slippery slope, right? <laughs> you, you don't want the focus to be so much on the practices that you forgot the principles that d drove those, right? And, and we saw that in organic, at least in some organic operations, is that, you know, you stamp a label on it and an incentive and suddenly and then make a bunch of practices. Okay, you gotta check this box, this box, and this box. What ends up can happen in those situations is you get an industrialized organic system that ignores the philosophies, but adheres to the practices, you know? And that's not organic anymore. We don't want that to happen in regenerative. The other aspect of this is, is we have to balance, you know, precision, it has to accurately describe a regenerative farm with function. Um, there's a couple of opportunities that farmers could, you know, look up to be called regenerative and they have to answer a survey of what they're doing on their farms. It's 52 pages long. And I'm like, no farmer in their right mind has the time or, or even all of that information about their farms at hand. So it has to be simple enough that people can actually use it. And so we, that's kind of what we did with Claire's study first, but then we've been applying this to Rangeland studies and then to, to Tommy Fenster's almond study on California. And, and the result is that we've got these four pretty comprehensive databases mm. of different characteristics of these farms. And then we have this this matrix score or this score, the number of practices that are being used. And so we decided to kind of explore that a little bit deeper and say, okay, does this system that we're using even work? And I'll be damned, but it really did. I mean, the more practices, the more regenerative practices that a farmer employed on their farm, the, the more soil organic matter they had, the more total soil carbon they had, the better water infiltration they had, the higher bugs they had, the more their pastures supported plant biomass, the fewer pests they had, the more money they made. All of these different elements of the farm just scaled really, really well. And what that does is it gives us an opportunity 
for 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 policymakers or for farmers or for regulators interested is this a regenerative farm or not and this is really the first time that anybody's really tried to apply something like this from a scientific standpoint and backed it up with actual data uh-huh okay i think it's really important because i i think that people are very much struggling with that how do we define it? And, you know, people add this practice and they add that practice, but how do we determine is it regenerative or not? So I think it's a really, it sounds like it's a very useful tool. Yeah. One of the things that it did that was really interesting to me is that when we looked at the number of practices, you know, just across basically generating this matrix score, um, what we ended up seeing is that there was two types of farms that just kind of inherently evolved, right? There was ones that had pretty high scores and then there was ones that had very low scores. Uh-huh. And that wasn't, I mean, in, in part that was kind of intentional, but for the most part, even though it was intentional, we found that there was a lot more variability in those farms than we ever could have predicted just by walking on there in terms of the number of practices. So it really was a snapshot of what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's no farms in the middle mm-hmm. was really telling to us. And I just, uh, so when we think about, oh, I'm a farmer, I want to go this regenerative route, I'm just going to go no-till this year. You know, that doesn't work. (laughs) Farms do not survive for very long if all they do is adopt one or two practices. They have to kind of decide, you know, am I going to go this regenerative route or am I going to go the conventional route? Mm -hmm. And the conventional route is getting more and more expensive. To run right and there's a lot more issues that are surrounding that conventional route and so when we advise farmers and and supported by this matrix that we've developed we say try adopting a, a whole system rather than just one or two practices and watching it fail adopt a system but you don't have to necessarily bet the whole farm on it. Practice, cut your teeth on the system on a smaller acreage on your farm, and then you can scale up to whatever size you want or need to do. But I think that that's important. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're sort of suggesting uh, 10% of the farm or less to start with or something or whatever they're comfortable with? Sure. Yeah, that would be perfectly fine. You know, I mean, most companies devote five, 10% of their operation to research and development, right? And a farm is a business, at least it should be. (laughs) Um, So devoting some space to trying something wacko sometimes can really lead to some amazing results that you didn't think were possible. So um, tell us just a little bit more about the regenerative matrix score that you're talking about. What, what What does that encompass? Sure. Um, so we kind of looked at a small suite of practices. So, okay, so when we think of regenerative, we think regenerative is, is unified across different cropping systems and landscapes and things like that by principles, right? And you'll see a, a list of these principles depending on who you're talking to, but we have about five of them or so um, that we like to think about here at Ecdysis Foundation. Number one is abandoning a lot of synthetic chemicals. Um, number two is no-till. Never till is, is really important. Always have, never leaving bare soil, always having living roots on the ground. There we go. Um, 
encouraging plant diversity, and then livestock crop integration are kind of key principles that seem to drive these systems. So what we did is we looked at a suite of different practices that kind of helped to define um, these, these principles. And they were things like going no-till, using cover crops, um, and, uh, abandoning insecticides, fungicides, you know, fertilizers, things like that. Having additional plant diversity in, on your farm. Maybe that's in the field margins. Maybe that's intercropping or interseeding covers or something like that. And then having animals out there. Maybe you're grazing a part of your rotation on the farm. Um, and it doesn't just have to be cows. In our almonds, we had chickens or we had pork or we had uh, sheep out there. So there's lots of opportunity. So a couple of the things that you mentioned, eliminating chemicals, the fungicides, the herbicides, insecticides, all of that, and also the livestock. Those are the two things that seem most difficult for a lot of farmers to be able to do. How are people who are new to those practices, how are you getting them comfortable with them? Sure. So what we end up seeing on regenerative farms, and we'll talk about the cropping systems here, the cornfields and the, and, the, um, and the almonds that we included in the study. We're working on a lot of cash grain systems throughout much of the country right now too. So we see these same results time and time again. What we end up seeing is that in neither of these two systems do we see a whole lot of insect pests because they're both being managed, right? One of the systems is attaining almost no insect pest pressure using insecticides and thresholds and things like that. The other one uses no insecticides. What they do is they replace those insecticides with things like plant diversity. Our work and what some of the research that kind of drove me down this direction, even back in my USDA days, is that we looked across cornfields, across in eastern South Dakota. But what we ended up seeing is that when we looked at all of the insects in these cornfields, right, 53 of them, we did whole insect communities out there, including all of the pests. The only time that we had pests in those cornfields was when there was very few other insects. We make our pest problems. We make our pest problem. And so getting off of the jugs is kind of an important step because it allows life to do its job on your farm. But it is terrifying, okay? I understand. One of our almond producers, we showed him the data from our almonds. Um, and he looked at the pest populations in him and his neighbor's fields. This was one of our conventional guys. And, and he's like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, I did everything I was supposed to do. I followed all the university recommendations. I followed best management practices. I sprayed insecticides on my almonds five times last year. What you're telling me is that the guy across the road who didn't spray anything at all had the same number of pests that I did. <laughs> And I just don't believe it. And But that guy changed 160 acres of his almond operation over to regenerative this year because we showed him. This isn't just an anecdote. It isn't just because he sprayed all of the pests in the whole region out of this. Uh, it, it's not like that. When there's insect diversity out there, it reduces your insect pest populations. But when you spray insecticides, 
you eliminate all the other life from your field. And so you're kind of on this treadmill then you can't get off of it. So it's really important to get off ASAP. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, but don't just abandon agrochemicals, replace them with these other principles. Because you're not going to be successful if you, all you do is adopt one practice, right? You've got to adopt a system. Gotcha. Okay. That's the livestock integration. You know, diversification is really important right now in every business, but especially on farms. I mean, we cannot be tying our farms to, to single or, or two grain commodity prices so that when China decides to to burp or something and, and not buy our beans that suddenly, you know, much of the Midwest ends up tanking the econ the economically. That's not, that ain't right. We need to be diversifying out. Livestock integration provides you with a huge additional tool that helps you weather these hard times, gives your whole operation resilience. Farm insurance shouldn't be a check from the government, all right? It should be built right into your operation um, in the form of diverse revenue streams that you can pull things out so that your whole farm doesn't have to hit every year. Parts of it always hit. We'll get back to the conversation with Jonathan Lundgren in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Jonathan Lundgren as he explains the scope of this study of regenerative farming practices. So let's go back to your matrix score. So you talked about the different practices that you're evaluating with it. And tell us about the scope of the study that you're talking about in the paper. How many farms were involved, the types of farms, Obviously, there was almonds, there was corn. Just give us a, sort of uh, an outline of what that all looked like. Sure. Um, well, this was a really many years of research went into this thing. Um, yeah, it was huge. Okay, so this is uh, in our rangelands. I'm, I'm going to pull this from memory. I hope I get it right. I think we had 56 rangelands that we looked at. Um, intensively um, on farms, I believe that we had something like uh, 40 or so uh, feet corn, or, yeah, t 20 cornfields that we sampled many, or farms that we sampled many times um, around South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska. And then we also looked at um, uh, almonds out in California in the northern half of the Central Valley and uh, tried to incorporate a pretty large diversity of those. I think we had 16 farms that we looked at everything. I mean, site inventories have never been as comprehensive as what we investigated in this. It's really unprecedented. Okay. 
What do you mean when you talk about site inventories? We looked at everything on, on some of these farms. I mean, we looked at soil micronutrient status, soil carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus. Uh, we looked at soil health scores, the Haney soil health score. We looked at mi microbial communities. Um, in, uh, we looked at uh, plant communities. In rangelands, we looked at the biomass, the diversity, the percent cover of these different systems. In, um, we looked at invertebrates. I think we uh, counted several hundred thousand insects for this study uh, that we identified down to species level. And then we've got um, economic profiles on dozens and dozens of farms across the country. So it's, it's, it's intense. Okay. Tell us about the methodology that you came up with to score farms based on these practices. Yeah. Well, what we did is we just asked the producers 10 questions, oh. you know, or yeah, or in the rangeland systems, we asked them only four questions oh. and then we gave them a score. Either you get a one or a zero for each of these questions. Did you use a fungicide last year on this field? Yes or no? They're just yes or no questions. This is, takes about five minutes to answer. Okay. But as a result, each of those questions kind of represent these broader principles, right? So did you plant a cover crop last year? Well, that gets at our principle of, did you leave bare soil on your farm kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as a result, those scores kind of break out. So if you basically, if you have a score of five or higher, you're regenerative. Um, and if you, in rangeland systems, if you have a score of three or higher, you're regenerative. And in rangelands, what we did is we looked at, um, did you use agrochemicals out there, um, especially porons or ivermex or whatever? Um, did you um, have high stocking density? Did you move your animals frequently? And did you allow that pasture to rest for a long period? How long did you allow it to rest? And when farms did those, they tended to fall into that more regenerative spectrum. So what we did is we went and we just got this laundry list of all of these, okay, your soil carbon is this, your, your insect numbers are this, your, your uh, pest populations look like this, your water infiltration rate was this, okay? Answer this survey. And, and what ended up happening is when they answered that survey, if they had a high score, they always had high levels of all of these positive things that regenerative farms are supposed to have. There's, regenerative farms are supposed to have more soil carbon. They're supposed to have higher water infiltration rates. They're supposed to have more critters out there. And what happened is that that always worked for this system. It was really cool to kind of see that all play out. It was like we knew it was probably happening. We knew it was probably working, but to see it work so consistently, it's like this is something that could be useful for people that are that are really trying to figure out is this farm I just walked on to regenerative or not. What we're interested in is can you just ask these ten questions and uh -huh. and then say okay. This farm, we're expecting to find this level of organic matter. We're expecting to find, because the data suggests that. So we're actually doing that across the country. We're hoping to garner a thousand farms across the country where, that we can look at um, in different systems, in different regions to prove whether or not this always works. 
Okay, I see. And so that is uh, something you're going to be implementing starting this coming year? Yeah, we're, we're probably up to around 200 farms this year that we're doing everything on, right? From soils all the way up to how happy you are kind of a thing. There's how much money you made last year, what's your yield, what's your nutrient density, everything from life, soils, and economic uh-huh. on these different farms. And now, so we'll be up to a thousand farms over the next couple of years. But an experiment like this has never been done before. It's just, it's enormous. Wow. Can you tell us what you learned about how various practices were correlated or not correlated with higher regenerative matrix scores? Yeah, um, we were really interested in whether or not, if you just did like one practice, whether there's just one silver bullet, right? As a farmer of all the things I can do, is there just one silver bullet? Um, That if I wanted to increase soil carbon, is what I got to do. Um, and, and so we looked at our data in a number of different ways and, and it showed, no, there really isn't. Um, you have to adopt multiple practices uh-huh. in order to make things work. And so that was really, I mean, it felt right, but it was nice to be validated with the, with, by seeing it in the data itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So were you surprised by the results that you, that you found? Um, no, but we were happy. (laughs) Um, I I mean, we've been using this for a while. We've walked on to every single one of these farms, right? And you can walk on and kind of know, yeah, this is a regenerative farm. Let's try to capture it with some numbers so that somebody else can replicate it. You know, Um, in the future, somebody can redo our study. Mm-hmm. and and show okay these guys were actually right you know um so uh we were expecting it to 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 work at least from the standpoint of treatments but it was really nice to see the incremental increase in almost all of these responses that we were interested in that was that was not a, not known but hoped for i guess mm-hmm. um can you just talk about that incremental increase a, a little bit more what do you mean by that well for every practice that you include into your operation, you get this much more soil carbon, you get this many more plant species, you get this many, this, this much more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, it's a, these are linear relationships at this point. Mm-hmm. So, um, you can use it to hopefully be somewhat predictive. Yeah. So talk about the yield and the profitability picture a little bit. Uh, It seemed like almond yield was not correlated with how regenerative a farm was. Mm -hmm. Uh, Corn yields were reduced as regenerative practices were added. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, you say regenerative practices are correlated with increased profitability. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yep. So that's not that's that's a disconnect that a lot of farmers don't understand. I think is that they think the more grain I produce, the more money I make. Mm-hmm. But it depends on how much you're spending in order to grow that grain. Right. Yeah. And so, what we find is that um, well, number one, just going regenerative. I mean, when we did Claire's study on the corn, it was the uh, regenerative was just getting started, right? I mean, these were established farms and they were probably the best practices that were out there at the time. 
but there was a lot of variability in the regenerative farms yields. And so it ended up being that on average, you saw a reduction of such and such, but actually some of the highest yielding farms in that study were regenerative. It's just that you had a much broader range. And that was true also in the almond orchards. It was like, boy, you know, uh, but in the almonds, uh, there there was no sacrifice of yield to go regenerative. Um, I see. So there's a lot more potential uh, yield a, a, a associated with regenerative than there are with conventional, simply because the conventional is kind of, it's more, much more fine-tuned, right? You know what you're, if you do this, this, then this, you're going to usually expect to see this kind of yield right in this range, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the disconnect between the profits and the yields. Um, we're focusing on the wrong things if you're focusing on yields. You need to be focusing on how much money you're making. Not spend, uh, yeah, you need to be focusing not just how much you're pulling in, but how much you're spending. So regenerative corn farms were twice as profitable than, than conventional corn farms. Okay. And the reason for it is that the regenerative folks were replacing their input costs um, with life on their farm. So they spent significantly less on seed costs. They didn't have to buy all of the special traits. Um, and then they were also um, saving a lot of money on fertilizer costs. Mm-hmm. And then they market their product a little bit differently sometimes. And that helps to improve the, the, um, the profitability. So if you just sell it to the coop, then you're going to get one wage or rate, right? But if you sell it to your neighbor who needs a particular grain crop or something, then you have opportunities there for increasing and not only keeping money in your local rural community, but also for increasing your profit margins too. Right. Um, in almonds, we saw twice the profit again. And the reasons for that, so we saw a lot more variability in the in the costs associated with producing almonds regeneratively um, you kind of know how much costs are going to be if you're going the conventional route but some of the regenerative producers end up spending a lot of money on on input costs and some of them spent very very little like like a fraction of what the conventional folks did okay um, and so as this movement towards regenerative starts to continue to move forward and we start getting better at it, I'm expecting that window of cost to start to dissipate. So the reason that the, um, the almonds were so, or were much more valuable is through marketing. Um, there was a premium for the regenerative product and then, um, and there was a lot more direct marketing of almonds to their customers and things like that, that really increased their profit margins. But, even so, even if you didn't get that premium, you didn't lose money by going regenerative. You always, you made just as much if you were, um, in terms of yields as you would if, if you had gone uh, conventional. Okay. So what are the big differences in inputs? Farming can be kind of an art form, can't it? And so there's, uh, you learn experientially. And so uh, until science comes along and catches up with this regenerative movement to try to standardize some of the approaches, you've got people that are doing things because, you know, I gave this a try. It worked 10 years ago. I'm going to keep on doing that. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't been like replicated or tried out. And so Mm -hmm. some farmers are just spending too much on inputs and they don't need to be Mm -hmm. some of these regenerative farmers. And so, uh, yeah. 
as we learn, we'll continue to kind of go that, help to hone that system. And so the ones that are regenerative and are not using synthetic fertilizers, are they mostly getting benefit from cover crop, from nutrient cycling, that sort of thing? Right. Well, first off, they stop losing nutrients and tillage is the best way of destroying your soil's uh, capabilities for uh, holding on to nutrients. And then um, they may replace it. So cover crops have a, have a real opportunity there for um, helping to increase soil fertility. Animals also have a real opportunity of getting the manure out on the ground. That's, a, that's huge. But then also there's things like organic amendments that they might be adding. And so we'd give them a score for like compost or compost teas that can help to kind of jive up a, a soil. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, but these farms that you're calling regenerative are not necessarily categorized as organic, right? No, they don't have to be at all. No. Um, so very few of the corn farms were organic. And in California and the almonds, all of them were organic, but they, but they were not industrialized organic. Let's put okay. it that way. They were, they were the highest tier of organic or what organic used to mean. Um, in the case of regeneratives. So a little bit different driving philosophy there. Yeah. And um, in terms of the corn growers, um, I'm assuming that GMO does not really qualify as regenerative. <laughs> nope, it's not. And, and it's totally unnecessary is what these guys showed. Um, that you don't have to be paying... I mean, these guys were paying 150 bucks a bag for their seed instead of two, 300, more than $300 a bag for seed with oh. all the trades. Uh-huh. Those trades aren't doing them any good. You know, I mean, uh, why, why would they spend the money on that? It wasn't an ideological decision. Oh, I hate GMOs because, you know, I think that they're uh, whatever. Um, it's because why would I spend money on something I don't need? You're not necessarily using this tool as a decision-making guide for farmers, or are you? Well, I think it could be. Okay. Um, you have to, just like everything, you have to look at it with a, with a caveat of it does something. It may not be the best opportunity for doing that yet, but I think it is a place to start. And so, yeah, I would think that if a farmer wanted to strive for regenerative gold, then they're gonna need at least five of these practices incorporated into their system. Um, and they, sh- they will be able to see this response in terms of their soils and life on their farms and their profitability. Mm-hmm. And what about time, like the time that it takes for farmers to see a response? How, yeah. how, how long are you seeing it take? Um, well, what we found is that uh, the duration that you're in a conventional system, the longer you're in it, the more soil you lose, the more soil carbon you lose, the more organic matter you lose. The longer you're in a regenerative system, the more you gain. And so, uh, yep, and that doesn't, I've not seen it plateau out yet. I don't know where that would be, but I think that um, that's an, also an important point to make because that there's, boy, there's a lot of opportunities with these regenerative systems to really mm-hmm. improve the productivity of your land, which is what farming was supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Long term. Yeah. So um, 
In this paper, you did talk about some certification programs for regenerative ag, and I know that there are a few that are, are out there. Um, and you suggest that any s system will need to be evaluated empirically to yeah. determine whether it, in, it results in the intended outcomes. So are you looking at this tool as something like the certification programs could use? It's very possible that they could start to employ this, yeah. But it is kind of a standalone unit. It wasn't intended to, you know, support a particular registration program. Mm -hmm. But uh, hopefully it ups the game a, a little bit so that these other programs actually put data behind their their what they're asking their farmers and not just telling them to jump through a bunch of hoops. Uh-huh, yeah. So people will talk about... Uh, when you're improving the soil, you're improving the uh, nutrient density in your food and thereby also improving human health. Mm -hmm. What do you say about that? Um, I say that the answer to COVID is uh, changing our food system. Uh, uh -huh. so I think that uh, really we have an amazing opportunity to solve planetary scale problems using our farm. While making our farms more resilient and profitable, everybody wins in this situation. Um, you're growing more nutritious food that's healthy for the people um, and can combat a lot of these autoimmune diseases and food intolerances that have come to proliferate in our society right now. Mm -hmm. um, we can solve climate change with this. We can reduce the amount of carbon emissions, but not only that, we can sequester carbon down in our soils. Mm -hmm. um, water, water infiltrates in some of these regenerative farms at, at six times the rate. And so for desertification of certain areas of our country, as we deplete the aquifers from over irrigation, I mean, this gives us a really opportunity, mm -hmm. a, a really good opportunity. Mm -hmm biodiversity loss. You know, I mean, the FAO says we've got 50 years left, 54 years left of topsoil. Guess what? We have 50 years left of life on this planet. We're losing species at 10% per decade. That means that at the same time we lose all the topsoil, most of life on earth is gone already. Hmm. So we don't have a big window here. Hmm. Uh, things, there's a real sense of urgency. Yeah, okay. And then also in terms of carbon sequestration, there's more and more companies every day announcing carbon initiatives, which is great. But I also have read that maybe it's uh, it's not true. What, what do you think? Um, well, if it's, you know, if it removes penalties for a company to just go out there and pollute, then that's probably not a good thing. You know, I, I'm of the mind, can we reduce carbon emissions or eliminate them and still destroy the planet? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we're asking the wrong question. <laughs> and, um, and so I think we need a much more systemic approach to this than simply regenerative equaling carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. Well, I think you're the guy to figure it out for us. Yeah, we're working on it pretty hard. <laughs> So um, just real quick, one thing that you haven't talked about much and um, is the rangeland portion of this. So yeah. can you just explain what that is? That's what pasture where, where animals yeah. are grazing? Yeah. That's uh -huh. not cropped, right? Um, 
So for the most part, it's grasslands. Um, we have data from the southeastern United States, um, and then we have the northern plains that we've been working on for, boy, five, six, seven years now. We're getting a lot of information from out there. But it's basically, it's the area of the land, which I think 40% of all agricultural lands is actually rangelands right now um, in the US. It's a huge geographic footprint um, and how you manage your animals on that, on that land really affects its ability to provide all of these services as well as just how profitable you can be. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you just put cows out there in the spring and forget about them, that turns out to be a pretty poor business decision. Okay. <laughs> so, um, having cows at higher stocking densities and then moving them somewhat frequently and then uh, and then not putting them back on that piece of ground and allowing that plant vegetation to resurge those are key elements to a very successful uh, uh, ranching operation so going forward um how i guess uh are you looking for more farmers to work with or are you guys tapped out? <laughs> yes, we always are interested in additional farming systems. Um, over the next year or two, we'll be starting to aggregate a whole bunch of more sites and stuff. So if there's farms that are interested in this, then it could be a part of that. If there's farms that are interested in transitioning over to a regenerative, at least even fields of their farms. Um, maybe this would be a good time to reach out and, um, and uh, start to become a part of that solution. Because what we can do is take what you're doing and combine it with what, you know, a gazillion other people are doing out there in order to try to give very clear advice. You know, when you do this, it produces this. This works, this doesn't. And, and at the end of the day, we can remove a lot of the risks and the um, potential hurdles for, for this next generation of farmers to go. Great, so how should they reach out to you? Through your website? Yeah, um, contact us through ecdisis.bio. That's our E-C-D-Y-S-I-S.bio. And, um, and, or Blue Dasher Farm, just look on Blue Dasher Farm Facebook page is pretty active and uh, you can contact us through there too. Okay, great. Well, Jonathan, this has been great. Is there anything else you'd like uh, you'd like to cover? Well, we get a lot of questions about change, and boy, this regenerative thing sure sounds great. Um, but what's it going to cost me to change? And I think that that's the wrong question. I think okay. that the question needs to be asked. You know, what's it going to cost you not to change? Um, because this world is quickly changing, and whether you adapt with it or not is going to determine whether you're, uh, you go the way of the dinosaurs or whether you're part of a, a new future. So it's an exciting time. We've got a great solution, and we're going to help as many farmers get into this new world. Thanks to Jonathan Lundgren of Blue Dasher Farms and the Ecdysis Foundation for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. 
If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.